This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by Emerging Markets Editor Ed Reed and journalist Ryan Duff. Hello, guys. So um, I was considering high-profile rebrand of the podcast this week uh, in solidarity with Musk and Twitter, uh, or should I just say X, X X.com? Any other, I don't know, if there's any other consonants or vowels that we could maybe pick for Energy Voice? Maybe just a sound? What about Y voice? Y. Mm. And you've got... Asking the big questions. You've got some existential kind of dread in that as well. Why though? Let's you know. Why? Just, what are we all doing? Why? I mean, it's it's a good. It's actually a good Just name why? for a, for for. It's, a, it's maybe a bit hipstery, but a good name for like a, a news site. <laughs> why? Why dot com? Well, you know. Why dot com? Okay, so this is the why dot com podcast, um, and we'll we'll <laughs> we'll be finding out some whys. Uh, why have Shell had such? Uh, interesting results um, this week. We've had the super majors reporting their Q2s, and well, Ryan, you've been taking a look at Shell. Give us some of the some of the takeaways from their results this week. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the 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 headline that's been circulating is profits down, right? You know, re- uh, they had record breaking profits in 2022, uh, and year on year they've went down. Uh, but several other other companies are reporting the same thing. You know, Ed's going to be speaking about Total later, and we had Equinor, I think, just the day before. They also reported the same kind of idea. Uh, in the first half of the year, Shell made $19.7 billion before tax. That's almost half what they made the year previous uh, in that same time frame at $36.9 billion. So obviously quite a major drop-off. Uh, and similar story for revenues. And if you isolate Q2 alone, it's again the same, a drop in year-on-year uh, profits. But I think a lot of people are sort of discussing, well, you know, oil and gas prices have went down, right? You know, last year was probably quite an unprecedented year. You know, we had the invasion of Ukraine, uh, supp- uh, supply for oil and gas went down, specifically gas, and then that drove up prices. And so naturally, your operators will have made insane windfall profits, right? And I do feel like that's probably just going to be the story for this year, right? I think every time we get these new announcements, it's going to be, oh, well, Shell are down compared to last year. Um, You know, like BP's results are just around the corner. And I feel like, again, I'm not an analyst, please don't hold me to this, but I feel like it's the writings on the wall. It's going to be exactly the same, right? It's going to be, we're down on last year. Um, But is that, is that the market trend you guys predict as well? Well, the, the interesting thing I saw was that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, people in the industry, analysts are all like, oh, yeah, you know, sort of, you know, oil and gas prices down. Obviously, you know, profits are down. Uh, but then this, the story is very different if you look at, say, you know, the headlines in, in The Guardian. Uh, which, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, windfall profits continue, you know, this is a bumper year as, you know, grease burns or, or, or whatever, right? So I think it's it's very much, you know, it's kind of a kind of a question of kind of where you come from, isn't it? And that sort of juxtaposition really sort of demonstrates just what a weird situation we're in where you can look at, you know, one clearly sort of objective set of facts and just come up with radically different interpretations. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like you can definitely see where places like The Guardian are coming from. You know, like 19.7 billion in six months isn't exactly something to be sniffed at. You know, it's 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 still insane amounts of money. So uh, you totally get where they're coming from. But, you know, obviously when you're comparing that to how the company was st- stood last year, and that also got massive controversy around it. 
it's you know I think I think putting it into context with that maybe is the the fairest way to do things, right? It, it just seems part and parcel of any kind of majors results announcement from now uh, 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 until the end of time, I guess. But I mean, the cost of the cost the cost of living crisis isn't something we can sneer at, and and certainly. As Ed points out, yeah, I mean, we've seen these wildfires across parts of Europe and and really quite distressing imagery coming out of that. I suppose, you know, so there's quite a lot in terms of news around dividends and, and shareholder returns, um, Ryan, and, and obviously that comes in the backdrop of certain majors kind of rolling back, if you like, their commitments to um, cutting oil and gas production. And obviously, you know, whale Sawan was in... New York earlier in the year, kind of playing up Shell's <clears throat> commitment to oil and gas and, and trying to, I guess, align with the the U.S. majors. So I guess the question is, and the question always is, you know, are they doing enough on the renewables space? Um, it seems to me that, you know, most of the barriers that in the U.K., which I guess is what I'm qualified to talk about, many of them are are political. You know, grid reform, port infrastructure, these are things that we kind of need the government to get moving on and then the hopefully that private investment will follow um but i don't know i mean how, how have the activists been responding to the results in terms of what we've carried ryan i mean have people been i'm, I'm assuming not sympathetic but what are some of the issues that have been coming up <laughs> yeah i think uh, i think it's important to mention you know the yeah the flip side you know obviously obviously you're you're just stop oils and fossil free, uh, free london's and greenpeace aren't exactly delighted they're not exactly going oh yeah well it's down near their profits are down nearly half so you know they've learned their lesson it's not not the takeaway is it uh, they're obviously not going to be happy uh, as long as any production's happening which you know there's there's a debate to be had there but yeah I, I, it's interesting what you mentioned about uh, you know like shareholders and dividends and you know uh, making the company align with yeah it's, it's u.s counterparts because yeah despite earnings being down you know the the company dividend was up 15 percent you know and uh, will salon uh chief executive of shell was saying that he's optimistic about about the year so you know clearly clearly that goal of making the uh of making the company slightly more appealing on the stock market is is working in some capacity um, i mean I, I just want to kind of want to, want to kind of jump in at that point and I, and I agree ryan like i think it is important that that, that majors and, and in fact the entire industry kind of you know gives back to uh to, to, to long-suffering shareholders i mean the amount of uh of money that the oil and gas sector has destroyed in the last uh 10 years is is, is quite extraordinary and, and obviously sort of, you know, underperforming in many ways. And, and I think that there is a real challenge there around, you know, sort of communicating with people who want, you know, uh, a sort of a dividend stream, which is obviously is, is, is kind of what, you know, Shell has kind of famously been, right, about. I mean, I remember you know, discussing on this podcast a couple of years back, you know, the, the, the point at which, you know, Shell was talking about kind of cutting its dividend and, and the sort of the, you know, the kind of the visceral sort of reaction. So I think I think that, that that's, that's an important story. And I think that, you know, that kind of question of like, returns to, to, to shareholders, buybacks is, is important. But I think it, it's also suggests something of the challenges that these companies see, right? Like about 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 where they should be putting their money. Um, because obviously, you know, kind of, it, it feels to me like uh, giving money back to shareholders is kind of like a, like a, the easiest goal you can get. I think actually, you know, sort of investing in new projects is, is, is a, is, is a, you know, more, 
possibly a more important goal or equally important but i think it's one that, that, that these kind of super majors are struggling with right do they do they go into big oil and gas projects do they go into big renewables projects you know how do they find that balance maybe it's easier just to just to kind of you know run down and and and, and hand money back to your long-suffering shareholders yeah i think that's, that's an important point to make you know uh, the the point of do you hand money back to your shareholders or invest and especially when we are we are quickly heading towards 2050 you know it's it's not as far away as you might think and you know we're seeing massive wind players like Vattenfall saying that they're going to cancel their Norfolk project because prices have increased 40 percent so clearly you're going to have to dedicate more revenue into moving into that renewable space and investing in projects like offshore wind which is sort of being championed as is the forefront of energy transition so yeah, I feel like it, it's an interesting balance they have to strike, right? Where you have to keep the shareholders on side, but then you have to keep keep enough cash aside for, you know, looking forward and what happens beyond oil and gas and beyond the projects we currently have. And, you know, offshore wind will be a major part in that and the price is rising, you know? Um, we did also get some updates on uh, UK infrastructure. Uh, speaking of uh, building stuff, you know, we've got... The Penguins FPSO, uh, the vessel that was expected to come to UK waters from Norway later this year, has now been delayed till 2024. Uh, Shell's CEO said that uh, due to COVID, there was some uh, challenges in completing some of the works required in the facility. Obviously, that would have been construction before it got to uh, Norway. And as we know, there was obviously quite a a journey for the penguins to get there with uh, protesters commandeering uh, during the, the vessel and having to be dropped off before it got to the yard. Um, but then Shell also said that in its first quarter results that there's still work to do on penguins. And now they're saying that it's going through its last technical works at Abel's yard. So it looks like the end's in sight. There's been a few delays on this project, but it's it looks uh, yeah it's it's sort of looking like it's going to come in 2024. But I mean, I think we've said that about 2023, and you know we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. It's had a lot of uh, it had, I mean, it was delayed out of China as well for a long time due to COVID uh, and the restrictions there. So we don't. It, it it is interesting and kind of strange. I think that uh, we're facing this in in Norway, um, but maybe it is a weather window situation as well. I don't know, but. Quite interesting to see, as you were saying, Ryan. Yeah, and, uh, you know, sp speaking of weather windows, you know, we were speaking about the Brent Charlie decommissioning uh, earlier in the week. And, you know, it's its last platform out on that very iconic North Sea uh, field. Um, they, they shall give the announcement this week that uh, the decommissioning campaign is on uh, the government's desk. They're waiting approval for it. This follows, you know, uh, Shell's decommissioning construction manager saying earlier this week that the end of an era is quickly approaching when it comes to the Brent field, suggesting that it might have been sooner than than maybe what Shell has indicated yesterday. Uh, that was in a now deleted LinkedIn post, mind you. But yeah, so some interesting, uh, interesting developments for UK infrastructure coming from Shell's uh, first half results as well. Okay, well, fantastic. Well, thank you for that, Ryan. Uh, we'll, we'll gradually move over. We'll stick with a very similar topic. And next, uh, Ed will be looking at Total for us.
As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ed, so while Ryan set the scene for the Shell side of things, is the picture indeed as similar uh, for Total or any differentiators there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the thing. I think, you know, Ryan Ryan really kind of uh, set the scene for, for, for obviously Q2s. As, as, as he said, like there there is this kind of, you know, trend, isn't there? I mean, oil's down something like 30%, you know, gas markers, you know, sort of 60%. And clearly, clearly a kind of a reflection from from the, the highs of last year and particularly around gas prices, right? And, and I think... There's a kind of a sense that obviously kind of going into winter 2023, we're kind of feeling a bit more positive about gas security than we were at this point last year. Obviously, August last year was that sort of extraordinary point when people were just sort of piling into to, to, to buying gas volumes. Uh, desperately trying to kind of shore up uh, their sort of winter security. And I think obviously that's quite led to quite an interesting situation where obviously maybe we're sort of sitting on some some quite high losses. Um, and I think that's going to be something that's going to be worked out. And obviously that's kind of like a, an interesting kind of interplay between kind of government and industry. But look, that's that's kind of off the side. I've been, I've been sidetracked by myself. Uh, where I was going to try and talk about <laughs> that's Total Energy. always a good uh, sign. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's, it's such a good start. Just in, in, in ready from the off. I'm just diverging into, in, into Europe. European gas security, but so I, I think. Look, I, I think you know, like obviously the the, the picture is very similar. I think you know, or, you know, um, so incomes down, revenues down, a bit does down, um, but it's still high, right? I mean, I think we're still seeing some really sort of healthy, healthy, healthy flows into the sector. Um, and I think uh, maybe you know one one sort of area to look at for for, for t- 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 total is just that the the ways in which they are sort of finding uh, opportunities and projects to invest in. I think so. I think you know similarly to to, to Shell, I think you know they, something like forty percent of cash flow is going back to shareholders and dividends. They're doing buybacks, you know. So there is this kind of question around what to do with the money that they're getting in. Um, so 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 total, you know, said it had launched sort of four major projects uh, in the quarter. Uh, a sort of a big gas plan in uh, in in Iraq, the Rio Grande uh, LNG project in Texas, uh, the acquisition of Total RN, and 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 uh, awarding contracts for a petrochemical project in Saudi Arabia, and I think. That kind of gives you a sense of, I suppose, of the ways in ba- perhaps in which we're seeing, you know, these kind of companies plan for the future, right? I think, you know, we, as we discussed with Ryan, right? How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you make plans for the future with, obviously, changes around demand, which obviously is going to kind of drive those kind of investments into supply, right? And, and at a point when, you know, there's that kind of question mark around, you know, sort of where does oil demand go? Obviously, it's kind of growing at the moment. We've got some problems in China, etc. But I think there is this kind of sense, isn't there, that um, 
the future is going to be more about gas. Uh, the future is going to be more about renewables uh, and, and and sort of petrochemicals. And I think those those kind of four projects kind of fit quite neatly into that into, into that rubric, uh, where people are trying to uh, find ways to use the, uh, the that sort of institutional knowledge that they've got to find new avenues of expansion. And I think the, the so the the Total RN uh, investment in particular was was kind of striking. I mean, so so Total had had, had owned a stake in in this uh, kind of renewables company for a while, and it was it was they made it clear last last year that they were going to you know kind of acquire the whole thing, and so they they announced this week just before the the Q two results that they were going to you know move ahead and and acquire this, and and you know because Total's got big uh, big 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 projects around big plans around that kind of total renewables growth so i think that uh, i think the uh, the the aim is for 100 gigawatts of renewable capacity by 2030 and they said this week in their q2 results that they're on about just under 20 and so obviously some of that's going to come from from organic growth from construction from from you know building their own kind of you know offshore wind farms whatever solar things like that but I think obviously also a lot of it's going to come from 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 inorganic uh, growth, right? Because to grow that fast, um, you're going to need to you know kind of really make 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 waves. So I think you know buying TotalRN, which has uh, 3.5 gigawatts of renewable capacity already, and another 10 gigawatts um, sort of uh, planned. So you know it's quite it's, it's kind of like a sort of a substantial pipeline of growth that will essentially uh, you know kind of add another sort of 50% uh, presumably to Total's to sort of existing capacity, and that came just a couple of days after a move into Turkey, where uh, they, they they bought a 50% stake in a sort of a Turkish uh, you know renewable project developer so i think there is this really sort of strong sense that there's a move into renewables in this big way but just to kind of you know close off my my, my remarks a little bit though this also this week um they began drilling in in uganda where they're, they're working on the big uh, lake albert project the telenga field is 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 obviously kind of you know one of the one of their big plans and so it really kind of demonstrates that sort of challenge that they're facing right and obviously no one's really talking about their moves into into renewable energy. You know, Just Stop Oil is not saying, "Hey, Total, you know, good job for this." They're saying, "Why are you building, uh, you know, um, um, the world's longest heated pipeline uh, in East Africa, mm. you <laughs> bastard?" Well, <laughs> that's an interesting point to be made, though. Are they are they striking the right balance? What do you think? You know, obviously they've got their renewables investments in Spain and Germany, and you know they they are moving into that. But then petrochemicals and oil and gas is still sort of on the cards. Like, are they striking that balance in the way to the renewables sort of transition or? I mean, this is this is always the big question, isn't it? And I, I suppose, you know, like it, it, was, it was quite interesting at their AGM, I think uh, in May, um, there was, they, they obviously there were, you know, sort of resolutions. And I think, you know, is it, was it follow this? Uh, put forwards uh, a resolution asking for you know essentially an, an acceleration of sort of energy transition plans, and I think I think something like thirty percent of shareholders in, in in total kind of backed you know like sort of faster progress. So obviously not not a sort of a majority to kind of you know like actually kind of push the the, the board into you know actual action, but like a really sort of, sort of a significant uh, uh, vote. And I think that's particularly striking when looking at you know sort of you know we started off by talking you know the Wellsell one going to the US. And talking to you know, trying to put Shell on like a kind of a level pegging with you know the sort of Chevrons and Exxon's, who obviously kind of thought 
it, it felt like they were thinking about energy transition in the in the depths of the pandemic and now have really kind of moved away from that you know there's maybe ccs maybe some hydrogen but really there's you know they're kind of back to kind of business as usual and, and it feels like kind of that that they're and, you know, the, the, the voters are kind of, you know, sort of supporting that move back to oil and gas. Whereas with Total, it feels like maybe there's sort of a bit more, bit more nuance there. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think with Total, it's, mu- it's, a, it's a much harder question um, because they do have this this international interest. But at the same time, as as, as Patrick Piano has, has has often said, right, the, the world needs investments into oil. So they are making those decisions, um, but obviously uh, with, with, with varying degrees of acclaim. I remember a Reuters piece, I think it was in November, and they were kind of looking at, basically, even then, Total were pulling ahead of their, well, now UK rivals, I suppose, Shell and BP in terms of renewables capacity. But in the same way that perhaps a Shell and a BP look with envy at the share prices of their US rivals, uh, Total's share prices were kind of underperforming against their UK rivals. So I I guess... it seems that Total are, are really working hard to build up this renewables portfolio, whether or not it's actually to the benefit of their shares uh, in the near term, I don't know. It, could it be argued they're just taking a more long-term approach and their shareholders are perhaps just, for whatever reason, more comfortable with that than some of their other rivals? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think certainly that's going to look like a really interesting point. I mean, I think obviously there there is that kind of question, isn't there, around investment cycles and, and and how you pick those 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 sorts of decisions and i think um i think i mean i suppose like looking at you know the the recent uh the recent wind uh, licensing plans in germany with a lot of sort of uh, oil and gas kind of companies you know paying kind of really kind of top dollar as they did as they did in 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 scotland right like the the sort of the, the prices that they were willing to pay to secure acreage were really high um and I think, but and that that obviously poses problems, doesn't it? Because um, if the prices are that high, and obviously as we've seen, you know the sort of the, the problems around, you know, the sort of supply chain and 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 some of those projects, you know, not going ahead as fast as as, as possible. Like it it it's, it it feels like a really really tough environment to be working in. Just like looking at that sort of offshore wind space. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure you guys are, are more on this ball than 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 I am. But it, it feels like um, if you're rushing in and you know prices obviously going up as a result then it feels like that might actually slow down project development so there's a kind of like a there's like a kind of a feeding frenzy which means that 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 maybe all those projects become a bit harder so i think certainly there's going to be a question of sort of trying to find the right projects in the right places and it it feels like that's a lot harder to do with power projects doesn't it than than oil and gas right oil and gas essentially you can you can export and, and and ship anywhere in the world Power is going to be largely consumed locally. Obviously, there are some options around hydrogen, say, but I mean, that's kind of, you know, that feels like a, a, a frankly, kind of a lot further out than, than sort of local demand. And local demand is always going to come first. So there are going to be those kind of questions around, you know, there is that desire to build renewable energy, but how how is it quite going to work out? Is it... And I, you know, I, I do feel that you know, putting a dollar into, uh, you, you know, silly a Ugandan oil project or an Angolan project or a, you know, a, a, you know, offshore Namibia, is probably still going to be more remunerative than an offshore wind project. I would, I would love to be proved wrong, right? Because I think clearly we're going to need a lot more, a uh, lot more offshore wind, um, to, 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 to try and 
tackle uh you know those kind of net zero goals but i'm uh mm. yeah well maybe the supply chain needs to come before the investment but uh well i'll be taking you up to the highlands next to talk just about that the cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes new sectors new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the uk and europe in the upcoming decades navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team Virtus Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. Okay, so I was trying to find a way to shoehorn a way of talking about my trip <laughs> to the Highland Wildlife Park this week. Um, but I can't, I can't really find a way of doing it. Whilst I was off, I should hasten to add, um, uh, had a couple of days, uh, headed on north from Aberdeen, or well, northwest technically, and then circled back round later in the week for a trip up to Ardeseer, which is uh, well, near Inverness, between Inverness and Nairn. Uh, kind of up in the Murray Firth area of Scotland, northeast Scotland. Uh, either of you been up that kind of neck of the woods just by chance? Uh, no, um, no. Desperately, desperately trying to think. I mean, is it is it is it worth a visit? Should I uh, should I should I pack the car up and head north? It's a beautiful country. Yeah, I think if you head it all, well, do what I did. Go from Aberdeen and do the Cairngorms and that, and circle back. But it is it is stunning. You should. I love the drive up, but you should uh, you should give it a go if you ever in the area. Um, but anyway, if, if you're not familiar with it, Ardisir, it's this huge former manufacturing site in the 80s up to the early 2000s. It was a McDermott's site for producing, you know, North Sea oil and gas platforms. And clearly, laterally, the North Sea went uh, with floating vessels and, and Ardisir uh, was impacted by that. And it closed down, I think it was 2001, something like that. But the former McDermott's Ardisir Facebook page remains very vocal, which I follow and uh, are following developments now with this proposed, well, redevelopment of it for offshore wind. So it's a 430 acre site, uh, just to contextualize that, that's about the size of 300 full-size football pitches. There is nowhere else in Scotland quite like it in terms of the laydown space for the huge components we're going to need for floating offshore wind. Um, so private equity-backed company Haventis recently came in as the owners of the site, uh, their, their own owners, uh, Quantum uh, Energy Partners, a private equity group based in Texas, injected £300 million, that's an initial £300 million uh, to get this project going. That is a huge sum of foreign uh, slash US investment into a port in Scotland, which is interesting in and of itself. That is just for the first phase, of course. It's going to take uh, a good deal more than that to get them to where they want to be, but they don't have any concerns about uh, accessing energy transition funding. We can talk a bit more about that in a moment, but we went up there to see it, to speak to Haventus, to find out a bit more about the origins of the investment, the plans ahead. And the goal is uh, for Ardisir to become a huge uh, manufacturing components base for floating wind here in Scotland. And I think the thing I'd take away from it is if this proceeds in the way they hope, then you've got, you know, Ardisir right across the Cromarty Firth as well, NIG. This will become the hub of activity for offshore wind in Scotland as we get through into these huge gigawatt scale Scotwind projects just a few years down the line. And if you look at the free the, the laydown space alone, as I mentioned, these ports are in a green freeport status consortium. So they've got those tax incentives to attract the manufacturers. They've got a lot going for themselves. And you know, Aberdeen has the skills, it doesn't have the laydown space, but 
build it and they shall come, I, I think is the saying. So some vast plans here to reuse Ardisir, hundreds of jobs expected to be created. And there's about, I think, I think there's about 50 gigawatts of least wind opportunities in the UK, something to that order. And Haventus reckons we'll do about two gigawatts a year or something of that nature in Scotland. So not very much, um, very slow and steady, um, but long term, right? And as the last ones kind of go out, the first ones will be coming back in for repairs, um, I think is the, the business thinking. So a chance for Scotland to become an exporter as well. But to get into Haventus, right, um, Lewis Gillis, a, a former BP man of 20 years, I think he spent another 15 working in and around the kind of the private equity world, is the CEO of Haventus. He's the one that was taking us around the site. Uh, and he's kind of using his industry and investment contacts to make our this year happen. Um, you know, it's hard not to be taken in by it. Um, and you, you need someone with, you know, the experience uh, to really uh, have that kind of uh, credibility, because we you do you do hear about it a lot, don't you? These big promise projects. This is going to X amount of money, X amount of jobs, and it just it doesn't happen. But uh, you know he he's got a new team, including former BP colleagues are in. Obviously, they've got the private equity investments. So that's a real vote of confidence, and some real experience there. Lots of work with BP and CCS. He was involved in uh, well, he's been involved around the world in that. He had a really good anecdote about Arnold Schwarzenegger in California <laughs> and selling him on a CO two storage site. But yeah, I mean, look, they're really convincing about the economic case, the environmental case. They're working with the RSPB to ensure the site is, is not a blight on, as I mentioned earlier, the stunning kind of natural beauty of the region. Um, so for that reason, they're not going to go ahead with a steel mill that had been mooted previously for the area. Um, but yeah, there's a few different facets to it. But again, I guess I guess what I'd take away from it is that, you know, they're hoping to have the ports initially opened up next year. Um, November time, they are in talks with a series of uh, turbine manufacturers, um, in, including many from Asia. Um, they already have uh, MOU in place with BW Ideal, um, who have uh, there's a video on our website. You can see it. There, this this production line um, for uh, floating foundations, um, which will be built out from Ardisir, and I guess. Most importantly, they've got the know-how and they've got the space to do it. So it's quite an exciting development. I'll be keen to, really keen to see how it how it takes off. You you, you said uh, very significantly that it was floating yes. offshore wind. Mm. Um, w why is it uh, floating offshore wind rather than just like normal stick it on the bottom? So, yeah, no, so it's a that's a, a very very good question. So I mean, yeah, if you look at, if you look at the the, the projects um, leased out in Scott Wind, uh, which was our massive kind of once in a generation or certainly the largest in a generation kind of leasing round recently last year. I think that was 12, oh, someone's going to correct me. Uh, Multi-gigawatts, I can't have it <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, I think it was 12, but it's been shifted in about, uh, we've got it available. Anyway, massive projects off the coast of Scotland. And, and clearly, as you get further out, the wind blows much more strongly and you can get more out of it. So a, a, a significant percentage of these projects, I think the majority of these projects are floating which, uh, as we know, is a burgeoning industry. It's a, a new industry. And it's an opportunity for Scotland, actually, to get out in the front foot with that. So, yeah, if, if we look at that, there's a, a lot of opportunity there. And, and yeah, I guess the, the direct answer to your question, Ed, is that fixed, would you can't get it deep enough for for, for the, the depths uh, out uh, in the North Sea as, as they're planned. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the floating side of it really does open up a whole lot of opportunities in terms of creating the technologies that will be required, um, 
creating, you know, get it, if you get out in the front foot, there's an export opportunity there for components to be built out of Scotland. Now, these some of these components do not tr- do not travel very well. Um, so I don't know how that would work, but certainly there's other aspects of it that could be exported in terms of the skills and expertise. And and yeah, it would lay a marker down um, for, for Scotland if we can get it right. And, and one of the other interesting points that came out of this trip was that Haventus said, look, Ardisir is the start for us. We're looking at places in in Canada, for example, I think they mentioned Spain as well. I'm yet to write up this story, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all top of my head. Um, but yeah, that, so that's that's really interesting. Um, I guess the other point to make is uh, they're private equity backed, and and private equity by its nature, at one point or the other, they're looking for an exit. Um, so I kind of asked about this, and they were kind of saying, well, energy transition private equities is a bit different from oil and gas private equity. They're you know longer term. No concerns around timelines. Could might they turn over their investors? Sure, but there doesn't seem to be any real concern there. I think it's really interesting to see the discussions around um, manufacturers from overseas coming in. You can really see that happening. Hamish had a piece last week on uh, Ming Yang, the turbine manufacturers seeking a place in Scotland. I did ask them if those were on the list. They obviously didn't didn't tell us, but uh, but there we are. Um, so yeah, it's just you know what, it's just an exciting thing to see in Scotland, um, and and we'll we'll be keen to see how it develops by November. Have I convinced you guys to go to the Highland Wildlife Park yet? Do you think you'll make a trip? <laughs> I mean, you have mentioned it both uh, both on the build-up to going and uh, since coming back, and you have become a PR spokesperson for them. So yeah, sure, why not? Over the summer, I'll. Uh, I could do it. I could do it. I, uh, it's so much better than Edinburgh. You get to drive around, it, like into the. It, it's great. You should go anyway. On that happy note, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and Ryan for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, Leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.